welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Christine Perry, and I am a staff attorney here at the Environmental Law Institute. On today's podcast, we discuss the first comprehensive framework for migration with dignity. Migration involves moving from one place of residence to another, within a country or across an international border, temporarily or permanently, for myriad reasons. Migration comes with a host of dangers, complications, and risks that can occur before, during, and after an individual migrates and can present challenges to lives and livelihoods. The concept of migration with dignity is increasingly used to promote voluntary migration in the pursuit of life with dignity. While there is a growing body of work analyzing dignity rights, there has not previously been meaningful analysis of what these rights mean for people who migrate. The framework for migration with dignity thus presents, for the first time, an in-depth legal and policy framework for identifying what dignity rights mean in practice. Today, we are joined by Carl Brook, Director of International Programs for the Environmental Law Institute, and Dr. Shana McLean, Visiting Scientist at the Environmental Law Institute and Global Partnership Manager for NASA's Earth Sciences Division. Today's dialogue will focus on the framework they have been developing on migration with dignity with an interesting history and equally interesting applications across different aspects of migration including climate change. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carl and Shana. Thank you, delighted to be here. Thank you very much. I'm excited for today's conversation. Great, so our first question today is for you, Carl. Can you set the scene for us a bit and explain how you came to work on issues related to migration and displacement? Sure, I've been working for, about two decades now with colleagues at the University of Tokyo on a range of issues. And for more than a decade, we've been working on issues related to people who have been displaced from dam development, from other infrastructure projects. And that led us to working with populations displaced by the nuclear disaster at Fukushima in Japan and looking at why people return, why they don't return, how some people get stuck in limbo. In that context, we started thinking about, well, how does this learning apply to what we are increasingly hearing about in the context of climate change? And so we started looking at how the work that we were focusing on in terms of the both the drivers of migration and the realities on the ground of people's lives when they have moved, whether it's uh, into temporary housing or into longer term arrangements, how does that apply in the context of migration driven by climate change? And this was also complementing other work that ELI has been doing on adaptation to climate change in terms of moving populations, whether it's in a more deliberate manner or in a reactive manner after disasters. Great. So, Carl, we often hear people described as climate refugees. Can you expand on this? Are there specific islanders moving because of climate change? And would they qualify as climate refugees? (sighs) 
it depends who you talk to. Uh, there are a number of problems, or di I should say difficulties, with climate refugees. Uh, in our work of Pacific, looking at Pacific Islanders who have migrated to the U.S., we find that people often come for many reasons. If you ask them, what's the top reason that you have come? We're looking particularly at people from the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia. They tend to focus on education, healthcare, jobs, and family. That's the top reason. If you ask them, what are the reasons? You start hearing things related to climate change. Sometimes it's climate change as such. Sometimes it's difficulty uh, with access to clean water or um, storms. So, the, But the truth is there are many reasons for migration. And it's hard in many cases to untangle whether somebody is moving because of climate change, whether they're moving for better economic opportunities, whether they're moving for um, any of a number of different reasons. And so it, saying that somebody is moving specifically because of climate change can be a difficult uh, task. Um, second, the international legal framework, particularly uh, around refugees, has a requirement of persecution. In order to be a refugee, somebody has to be persecuted. And it's difficult to make a traditional argument that climate change amounts to persecution because there's no intent of actually harming that individual. We also look at the kind of the broader legal framework and while people have been talking about a climate refugee convention or some sort of instrument, it seems unlikely to have an effective overarching treaty that addresses climate refugees anytime soon. And we also, the third challenge after causation legal framework is the timing. In many cases, uh, there's a question of when people have to move. Um, if you have to move and you're, and you're displaced and you do not have a choice, then all your assets have been wiped out by the disaster and people don't have the ability to move proactively. And so there is this sense that maybe we can um, think in a more proactive way that uh, enables people to move when they want to move and have dignity in the process. So Shana and Carl, this is why you focused on migration with dignity? So some of uh, the research Carl mentioned, um, you know, regarding uh, those who were displaced by Fukushima and also um, those migrating from the Marshall Islands and from Micronesia uh, were, were projects that Carl and I were working on together. And I think during parts of this research, we were discussing some of the common challenges that we were seeing across these different populations. Um, and we're reminded of the idea coined by former Kiribati president Dinote Tong, who suggested that his people should have the right to migrate with dignity. And I think at, in his mind um, at this time, it meant empowering people to have control over the way they move. So whether, when, how they migrate, but also that they've been provided with the necessary skill sets before they move so that they can have a life that is either equal to or better than the one that they're leaving behind. 
And so from that, we, we built off of Tong's original vision on these concepts of um, education and freedom of movement, but extended them to include some of the elements that, that Carl mentioned, uh, access to, to jobs, um, issues related to employment and education, um, and other elements. And so we've expanded um, the original vision into our framework of Migration with Dignity, which has these considerations um, focused on migrating and living a life of dignity. One of the really interesting things about the Migration with Dignity framework or concept is that it's very, it has powerful resonance with a lot of people. And we see people using the term, but when you try to find the peer-reviewed literature, well, what does this actually mean? What are the indicators of migration with dignity? How do we know if there is dignity in this particular context? There's no conceptual or legal underpinnings. And so th th this, this really got us thinking and we realized um, we have colleagues at the University of Delaware, uh, particularly Professor Aaron Daly and Jimmy May, um, who also run the Dignity Rights International, which is an NGO focusing on dignity rights. They are among the global leaders of what are called dignity rights. They're not experts on migration, but they have worked for years identifying, cataloging, and categorizing dignity rights around the world. And so we realized this was a really unique opportunity. Here was this general idea that was in the ether that people were using, but it, there, was, there wasn't that real meat under it. And when we started talking to them, we realized that a lot of these a lot of the dignity rights that they've been looking at generally are very relevant to migration. And so we set up this partnership with the University of Delaware and the Dignity Rights Initiative with the UN's International Organization on Migration and with the Ocean Policy Research Institute, which is part of the Sasakawa Peace Foundation in uh, Japan as a way to bring together these different threads around uh, dignity rights and migration and um, particularly in the context of climate change, but looking very broadly at how this all works. Thank you. And Shana, would you be able to describe the migration with dignity framework that you and the others have elaborated? Sure. And I would build, I, I think, off of some of what Carl just mentioned when we were trying to identify what these challenges looked like in practice and what migration with dignity could look like. We built um, six key dimensions that of migration with dignity that focused on what we were seeing uh, with the variety of uh, groups that we were working with and communities that we were working with. And so uh, the first dimension for migration with dignity is focused on freedom of movement. Uh, this includes you know, freedom to leave your country of origin, to return to your country of origin, to move within the country that you're settling in, but it also includes the admission into a foreign country. So understanding that uh, you know, when in situations where people are displaced, sometimes you're given temporary um, 
ability to move, but this is really ensuring that you have the ability to move when you want, that you're moving on your terms and that it's, it's free wherever you're trying to go. The second dimension is on the right to be secure, which includes freedom from sexual violence, abusive detention, human trafficking and slavery. And the third is the right to equality, which not only focuses on prevention of discrimination against race, gender, age, and other factors, but also focuses on the enabling environments and the opportunities needed to have um, equal treatment, which includes things like upward mobility. A fourth dimension of our framework is focused on the right to a basic quality of life, which looks at being able to get a job, uh, to seek gainful employment, to have a roof over your head, to have access to healthy meals, or, or just to be able to feed your family. And that comes in complement with the fifth dimension, which is on the right to access services. And, and this is about being able to access healthcare, education, legal services, but also having services like electricity and other utilities that allow you to partake in meaningful elements of, of society, of your community. And finally, the last dimension is on civil and political rights, which include identity, religion, language, and free speech. And as Carl mentioned, all of these dimensions have foundations in human rights and dignity rights. And so while working on analyzing um, all of these elements, you know, from a legal context exist, it's, it's really for the first time that we're bringing them all together on what this means in the context of migration. If I could jump in here, I wanted to make a couple of broad observations about the nature of these rights. So Shana, outlined this series of six categories of uh, dignity rights in the Migration with Dignity Framework. And one of the things that we really tried to do with um, uh, Aaron and Jimmy and the others on the team was to identify to what extent do these rights already exist? Do they exist in human rights law? Do they exist in international migration law? Do they exist in comparative constitutional law? And we found that many, many of these rights are already widespread and well-established, at least in the law. There are often challenges in implementation, but the, the basic rights are already well-established. There are some areas that are, I would say, are more aspirational in this framework. So uh, in terms of freedom of movement, for example, the ability of a person to leave their country is well established. The um, ability of a person to demand entry to another country is not as well established. And so there are, um, uh, in terms of how universal are each element it's it will vary depending on the particular element but i think that it's important to note that most of these rights most of these dimensions most of these elements already exist in international law and in many cases in national law and importantly in bilateral treaties so i, I mentioned the freedom of movement um, generally you know in order to enter the us you have to have a visa and visas uh, or, you know, there are quotas by country. However, we have these compacts of free association with certain countries, including 
the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau, which basically say that these people, citizens of these countries, can come in any time they want, as long as they haven't committed a felony. There is no visa. There is no quota. They are welcome. And the U.S. gets a number of uh, um, benefits as part of the this, this, this compact of free association that is part of the political bargain with the countries. But we find a number of these uh, weaknesses in, in terms of the universal universality of international law can be addressed in very specific circumstances. So I think that's the second point here, and that's that the Migration with Dignity Framework provides a set of metrics by which we can analyze different contexts. And we could say, in this particular context, if the people are moving for work purposes or for climate change purposes or for whatever, and they're moving from this place to this place, what are the different elements of migration with dignity? What exists on law? What ex what's happening in practice? And you can use this to help figure out where things are going pretty well and where the gaps are. And it, it, often the debate around migration with dignity, around climate and migration, is it really focuses on the movement, the, the movement from one place to another. It doesn't focus on what happens before. It doesn't focus on what happens after. I think that that's the third point. Migration with dignity takes a much longer view of the linkages between migration, climate change, uh, quality of life, and good governance across that whole experience. Thank you both for helping us um, understand a little bit more about the framework. And this question is for both of you. Why is this framework important, particularly in an era when we can expect additional people to be moving because of climate change? So similar to what Carl said, I mean, some of the, the overarching reasons why it's important is, is because it's able to provide a baseline by which we can evaluate particular pathways of migration, right? We take a longer view approach. Um, or it also allows us to identify gaps in protections across the, the, the migration cycle. And <clears throat> further, we are able to then apply it the, the framework in a number of settings. And so it could be looked at under internal migration contexts where most migration is taking place because of maybe uh, livestock movements um, or you know changes in agricultural outputs, et cetera. Um, but we can also apply them in other contexts uh, such as climate change. Um, and it also, I think, it's important because we're able to expand it across the entire cycle of migration. We're not just looking at moving from one place to another and treating migration as though it's a linear construct. Instead, we're looking at it as a, a pathway or a, a cycle, something that could lead you maybe from or country of origin to destination country, but it could also mean that maybe you settle somewhere temporarily as you're trying to get towards 
um, your intended place of, of living or maybe uh, something about uh, why you left the country changes and you want to return. And so we don't treat it as a linear or static type of pathway, but instead apply these different components or dimensions of dignity, um, migration with dignity to uh, various points across the migration cycle. And it also means that some of the, the dimensions that we've been talking about are applicable either broadly across this, this cycle of movement, but others may have more of a focus or maybe more acutely impacted at certain points. Um, I mean, we've seen examples where uh, while you're trying to get through um, border crossings that there are abuses related to human trafficking and sexual abuse. Um, and there are others, uh, you know, just freedom of movement more broadly, which you would want to see applied across the different components of the cycle. And so we're looking at not only the context where the migration with dignity framework applies, um, such as climate change, but also where across the migration cycle, these dimensions are most impacted. I'd add two points. I'd add two points. First of all, uh, I mentioned the challenge associated with the uh, complexity of and uh, combination of reasons for migration, how people often have multiple reasons for migration. And uh, if things are, climate change may be part, it might not even be the dominant reason. This means that you could, you know, even if climate change is only part of the reason, you still have the benefit of the framework and the rights in that framework. And secondly, because it is based more on human rights and dignity rights, it's not only applying to refugees, which would require a persecution. So this is this is enabling people to have rights that protect their dignity. This is everything from their, their safety, their movement, and their ability to provide for themselves and their families. That is not contingent on a finding of fact that they have been persecuted. So I think that this helps solve two of the key problems, key challenges associated with the term climate refugee. And it does so in a much more integrated and holistic manner, as Shana was saying. Can I also add, I, I think one of the things that, that the Migration with Dignity Framework also does um, in complement to Carl's point is that you can look at other types of, of frameworks like the Global Compact um, or others and human rights might be mentioned, but they really present a, a, a tool or a framework for how, to, how governments can better um, manage uh, migration and migrants that are coming into their country to reframe uh, what migration looks like, to make it into more of a positive opportunity for countries, but it's not focused on the human experience. And so what our Migration with Dignity Framework does is it, it highlights those experiences that are uniquely 
felt by individuals. And I, and for me, that I think is a is definitely an important aspect of the framework. It seems like this framework is pretty comprehensive. Shana, are there other ways we could apply the Migration with Dignity framework? I think uh, that there, there are a lot of possibilities. I, I think it's something that excites Carl and I and, and partners of ours as well is looking at the different contexts where this framework would be beneficial um, in, in applying it. I, I think that there's an element of the framework that we're also trying to to expand on. We, we know that it's it's essentially a work in progress and so we're trying to use the application of it in different contexts so that we can make sure that we, you know, are the six key dimensions um, all that there are? Should we be looking at other things? And so in order, I think in, in that pursuit, in, a, in order to understand um, the application of migration with dignity as a framework, we're exploring it in a number of contexts currently, um, one of which is looking at the COVID crisis and the dimensions um, that are challenged by experiences uh, by migrants with inability to access healthcare or a distrust of the healthcare system um, because of historic discrimination. Um, but also looking at the inability to return to their country of origin due to border crossings in the case of the Marshallese uh, there and the and, um, Micronesians, we're looking at the Compact of Free Association, which allows them to freely move between the United States and um, our, uh, the Republic of Marshall Islands or the Federated States of Micronesia. And But in, in situations of COVID, the borders are closing. And so a lot of people aren't able to return home, you know, to the areas that they consider home. And so what does this look like you know, in COVID? How, how does our framework apply to these settings? We're also looking at the context of recent anti-immigration rhetoric and what impacts that has on migration with dignity. Um, I mean, I think we've seen a lot of discrimination recently um, and, and a, a complementary executive order coming out um, trying to protect discrimination against Pacific Islanders and other um, others of Asian descent. And so what does the migration with dignity framework look like in these different contexts? And, and I would say, of course, we're also very interested in expanding um, the application of our work to the context of climate change. Shana, I'm wondering, might you elaborate just a little on the gender aspects of this? Uh, it seems that there may be some gendered dimensions to the migration experience. How does the Migration with Dignity Framework account for that, or might there be some gaps there? Sure, Carl. Um, so I think what, what's interesting about the way that we've developed the Migration with Dignity Framework is that I, we've got these six key dimensions, but there are, we're, we're, we're looking at it from a variety of questions related to like how can it apply in different contexts, but we've started recently also considering what it looks like when you apply a lens, a particular lens across the framework itself. In this case, uh, a gender lens. And so uh, in what 
what it means, frankly, is that there are key components. I mean, and you can see this across any element of the six key dimensions that we've highlighted in our framework where gender plays a role. Um, and so it's not just migration with dignity as we see it, but what it means like in when when it comes to, um, geez, I would say freedom of movement for women is, is a challenging question. A lot of women, um, you know, because they're moving, uh, they may be moving with children, maybe they're put in a context that changes the way that we see the migration with dignity framework. I think it's important to, to look at the framework then with a lens of, okay, um, what are the unique circumstances that particular groups of people are experiencing as a result of, of this their migration pathway. And in some cases it's, it's uh, you know, fear of moving because you are either alone or you're with a child, you're unaccompanied by a male, which has particular, um, I think, uh, it, particular cultural uh, considerations um, in different countries around the world. It also means that you might be more susceptible to trafficking or sexual abuse. Um, and it also plays out even when you're talking about um, access to services, when we're talking, when we're looking at things related to uh, reproductive rights um, or equal treatment. Um, if we if we're applying a gender lens, then we understand that even though in some countries there may be a lot of progress that's been made um, regarding particular, man you know, the way that gender is treated in certain contexts, it's not necessarily going to be universally applic applicable. And so maybe, um, you know, the ability to have upward mobility or to simply get a job in a particular field is challenged by what gender you identify as. And so it's not, you know, inherently just a female problem, but it could be um, something that, that crosses over the variety of um, ways that we identify um, in across gender. This is really exciting work. Um, I know I, for one, am really interested to see where it is going. So Carl and Shana, what are the next steps for the Migration with Dignity Framework? After a year of intensive research, synthesizing the different dignity rights and examining how that applies in the context of migration with dignity. We are publishing the conceptual framework as a white paper for discussion. With the publication of the white paper, we expect to reach out to a wide range of people to consult about what the framework uh, looks like, why it's important, are there other ways of uh, looking at migration with dignity, are we missing anything, are there um, elements in there that should not be in there. And this is a very exciting time to be doing it because we have the run-up to Stockholm plus 50. This is the 50th anniversary of the UN Conference on the Human Environment. It's going to be held in Stockholm in June of 2022. And this is a chance to look 
at how we have come on sustainable development where we need to go. And while migration with dignity often, it's sometimes hard to see, well, what's the environmental law lens here, Carl? <laughs> the, the, the issue is not just about environmental law, it's about sustainable development, it's about human rights, it's about, it, it has a strong climate change element, it has a strong natural resource element, but also has elements of livelihoods and social justice and dignity. And this is one of the areas that I think is really exciting as we are looking at how to integrate these different bodies of law, international human rights law, international migration law, constitutional law, um, domestic and regional uh, instruments that deal with everything from migration to uh, human rights to development, this is a chance to reflect on a challenge that we expect to see growing in the years and decades to come. And that is climate change compelling people, peoples, and communities to move. And how can we do this in a way that is equitable? How can we do this in a way that preserves people's dignity? How can we do this proactively and not reactively? So we expect to spend uh, a good time following the publication of the concept paper, doing consultations, and in the process also examine, as Shana was talking, how does this framework work in the context of COVID-19? Does Do pandemics change the rules or the expectations? Um, how does this apply? Uh, how do you look at this through a gendered lens? How do you um, look at migration with dignity in the context of uh, political uh, populism? These different dimensions and different contexts help to understand where the strengths in the framework are and where we need to do some more work. So I expect that there's going to be a lot of consultation, a lot of discussion, um, but I also expect that it's going to be at a very good time for this. As people look at how migration intersects with environmental change and climate change, and not only what the problems are, but what the solutions are. So based on what Carl said, we've got um, a lot of consultations ahead of us in order to both understand uh, the extent to which the work that we've put together so far is meaningful and, and is comprehensive enough. Um, we're looking at different contexts, as he mentioned, um, but we're also trying to understand from from the public and from practitioners, whether or not there are additional elements that we should be considering. And so as a final note, I would simply ask any of the listeners of the podcast today to please reach out and let us know if they have additional input on the six key dimensions that we've noted today or the various contexts and migration pathways that we've discussed. 
Um, if they have any suggestions for things that we could be considering or moving our research towards in the future, we'd be welcome to feedback um, from the listeners. And you can please uh, feel free to email us at mclean at eli.org and brooke at eli.org. Thank you. This has been such an interesting conversation. I'd like to thank both of you, Carl and Shana, for spending time with us this afternoon and talking more about the Migration with Dignity Framework. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us, Christine. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.